0: Welcome to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. The title of the podcast is, Should I Count My Mean Husband More Significant Than Me? This is a big whopper of a question, and I want to deal with it in this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. You can find me at rickthomas.net. If you have a question about this podcast, you're welcome to ask it on our community forums. If you're a supporting member, go to our private forums and ask your question there. Perhaps you have a question about something else, and that would be fantastic. You can ask anything that you wish. Our desire is to serve you, and we'll be more than glad to do that. And we can do that in one spot in cyberspace, and that's on our website, rickthomas.net. And we will talk to you there with whatever is on your mind whatever is going on in your life this question here the title of the podcast there is also an article that goes with it i would encourage you to read this article and i have others that are embedded with it as well as we do with all of our your daily drive articles but this is a huge one and i want to go through it carefully because the question is real is too real for too many people and one of the problems is is that we can We can conflate scriptures, or we can take scripture, and we can bring it into the situation that we have, but it's either not the right verse for what we are going through, or we don't have the best interpretation of the verse. Now, the passage of scripture that I am talking about is what Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me read it to you, and I'll jump right into this, but as you think about a spouse, a wife specifically, in a difficult marriage. And she's reading Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 that says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. There's the big word, in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you, here's verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. We love this passage of Scripture. There are a few passages in the Bible that if you're going to memorize them, well, this is one of them. There's a handful of them, and this has to be one of them. Philippians chapter 2, the mind of Christ passage, as we Learn what our great leader has done and how we want to emulate him. And so in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Thus, I'm taking that verse, and I've titled this article, Should I Count My Mean Husband More Significant Than me. Paul tells us in this Philippian passage that we should count others more significant than ourselves. That is great. We are okay with that. We understand it. We check that Christian box because that is really at the heart of being gospel centered. The two greatest commandments, as you know, are to love God and love others more than yourself. And Paul presses the point further by saying that we should not only look to the interest to our interest, but we want to look to the interest of others. Now this perspective, in his view, is what it means to have the mind of Christ. Now let me ask you some hard questions. Suppose you were reading Paul's passage through the lens of an abused wife. You see, the Bible applies to everybody, but we have no control over who is going to be reading the Bible. Maybe everything is great with you, not just with this text, but any other text of Scripture. You read it, and it is easy to say yes and amen to whatever the passage says, but put yourself in someone else's chair and maybe in this case, put yourself in the chair of an abused wife, a wife who wants to be humble, because that is what Paul was saying. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. So she wants to be humble, but she does not want to experience continual abuse. All right, so here's my questions to you. I have four of them. Think carefully. Does humility mean letting a man, or for that matter, does humility mean letting anyone trample all over you? Now maybe, perhaps, what you would like to do is to think about your church. Maybe you are in an authoritarian church with a domineering pastor. Maybe you have some other. Maybe it's a work environment that you have. There is some believer in your life, and they are domineering, they are authoritarian, they are harsh and unkind, and you want to count them more significant than you. So does humility mean letting man or anyone trample all over you? Question two, what's the difference between being humble and being a doormat? I do want to make sure that you don't confuse those two things because they are, they are worlds apart. Question number three, does a woman in this situation have any recourse other than submission. And so now I brought another word into the conversation. We have abuse, we have humility, we have counting others more significant, we have being a doormat. Where's that factor in? And then this idea of submission. And then finally, question number four Is she wrong to look to her interest at a, as a matter of mental and, and physical self preservation? If you live with an abusive or mean person, there must be another way of thinking about laying aside your rights while maintaining the integrity of the gospel. I want to walk you through uh, how to do that because you can you can think correctly about what does it mean by laying aside your rights and maintaining the integrity of the gospel but yet not putting yourself in a position to where you're being abused. You can do all of those things. This common issue is a layered problem that we must navigate biblically. To preserve the safety of the wife, that is first, that is foremost, while seeking to restore the abusive husband, that's something that we want to accomplish, and then we want to honor God and His Word. Now, you can do two, at least two out of three of those things. You can preserve the safety of the wife, and you can honor God and his word. Now, as far as restoring the abusive husband, well, I'm not so sure about that. God is the grantor of repentance, and if God does actively work in this man's heart and brings him to the place of repentance, then you can accomplish all three of these things. You can preserve the safety of the wife, you can restore the abusive husband, and you can honor God and his word. Now, fortunately, the Bible has given us a way to think about this marital puzzle And we do not have to go any farther than the example of our Lord while he lived on earth. Let me give you a few illustrations of this. Before I get into the granular level of this marriage that's gone to some bad places, I really want to lay a strong foundation about how Christ was able to always live in humility, but yet he did not submit himself to the sinfulness of other people. And that's the juxtaposition that I want to make here. This is what I want you to get fixed in your mind. You can be humble, and you can be unsubmissive to the evil of others. Jesus was a humble man who exercised force at times. You see, those two thoughts are not antithetical they actually can work together Jesus was a humble man who exercised forth at uh, force at times Jesus was a meek man who was courageous when challenged and then the third one is Jesus was a lowly man who was not afraid to rebuke a friend now he did that in mark 833. So we have a humble man who exercised forth, we have a force, we have a meek man who was courageous, we have a lowly man who was not afraid. And this is why I want to. Ha- I want you to have a good understanding of what humility is and what it is not. And when I juxtapose the idea of humility and a doormat, I said that they are worlds apart because they are. You can be humble, you can be meek, you can be lowly as a wife or as any other human being, but you can also exercise forth and be force and be courageous and, and not be afraid to rebuke a friend. When some people hear the word humility, they can quickly connect it to the, the idea of a lowly, doormatish mindset that allows anyone to walk all over them. That is not who Jesus was while He lived among us. He was humble? Yes. He was lowly. No doubt, but he was not a doormat who allowed anyone to kick sand in his face. The word humble carries the idea of being submitted to something or being submitted to someone higher than you are. Jesus lived a submitted life. He did not demand his rights, his preferences, his prerogatives. Jesus set aside what he had for the greater good of something else. And even when his desires began to conflict with his higher purpose, he quickly submitted his heart to that greater calling. You see this in Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Let me read it to you. Father, Jesus is saying, this is a quote, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. When Jesus' desire began to conflict with the higher purpose, he quickly submitted his heart to the greater calling. And that's why he could say, I want this, I want this cup to be removed from me, but I will submit my will to yours. This idea of setting aside your desires, setting aside your preferences, is at the heart of the gospel, which is what we read in that great gospel-centered teaching in Philippians let me give you some more Philippians. I gave you verses 3 and 4, counting others more significant. But Paul, the next thing that Paul says in five, and, 5 through 7, he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men." Jesus was the paradigm when it came to submitting, setting aside, lowering himself to a higher purpose. In John's gospel, he told us what that purpose was. In John four thirty-four, he said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his food. That was his higher purpose. That's what he submitted himself to. In 638 of John, he said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, humility has the will of God in view, not the will of men. Jesus was humble. Jesus submitted, but he submitted to the will of God. He did not submit to the will of men. The will of God was the primary transcending and steadying influence in Jesus's life. To do the will of the Father was his chief aim, which is a solid definition of humility. If you want to know what humility is, then it is submitting yourself to God Almighty. To God's will, that is humility. The humblest man or the humblest woman on earth is the person who has set aside their desires to do the will of the Father. The holy submitted heart, the entire submitted heart to God is the humble, humble heart. It was this kind of humility that motivated Christ to set aside all that he enjoyed with the Father and take up. The lowly position of a human for the salvation of uh, of humanity. The safest response of the abused woman is to set aside her desires for the desires of God. God's desires are pure and holy. That's what she wants to submit to. That's why she wants to set aside her desires. And she wants to submit to the desires of God because God's desires are pure and holy. She will never go wrong if she puts God's desires ahead of her own, which is what Jesus did. It's what I've been saying here, and that is what defined and influenced his humility. You want to define your humility the right way. You want your humility to be, uh, to be influenced the right way. And the way you do that is you submit to the will of God. You see, there is a misguided humility that a person could ascribe to, which has the interest of other people in mind, even if those interests are selfish, harsh, cruel, or unkind. Let me explain. Suppose you were married to a mean and domineering man who uses his physicality and his mentality as a way to manipulate and warp you. Suppose you read a passage like Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this this, uh, interest of others and having the mind of Christ and setting aside and all of that. What if you read that passage without biblical guardrails? If your soul is tender and easily influenced, you could quickly find yourself swerving into a deep ravine of spiritual and physical bondage. The Christian who desires to be humble but has a poor view of humility will submit to abuse if they embrace a smothering understanding that others are more significant, that what that means is any person can do anything to me because I want to be like Jesus and remember folks crucified him. Yeah, mean people did crucify Jesus, but you have to ask the question, why? because he was doing the will of his father. They did not kill him because he had a weird view of humility, which meant anyone could do anything to him for any reason. You remember the conversation that he had with Pilate. In John nine nineteen verses 11 and 12, it says this, Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Humility must always have the right end in mind, or it will become a bastardized outworking of humility. Jesus' humility had the will of the Father in mind, not the will of any other person. If the abused spouse has the will of her husband in view, she will submit to the sinful whims of her husband. That is not humility. You know what that is? Fear repackaged. A perverted form of humility. But if the abused spouse had the will of the father in her sights, she would find guiding stability that can lead her through the storm that is currently in her marriage. People were regularly coming to Jesus, and they were asking him to do this and to do that. The astounding thing is how the misguided desires of sinful people never manipulated him. Think about what I'm saying here. People were asking him to do all sorts of things. People were trying to manipulate him. People were trying to coerce him. People were trying to force him to do whatever their misguided desires were. And Jesus was never manipulated. He never responded to them the way they wanted him to respond to them. And he was always humble. It was as though he was looking through them to the Father's will, which was acting as a lighthouse in a sea of noise. The agenda of the Father steadied him. It was God's will that provided the interpretive grid through which he responded to others. Let me give you some illustrations. The rich young ruler wanted to get into heaven through the works of his hands. Humble Jesus, and I want to say it that way, Because I never want you to forget that he was humble, he walked in humility, but yet he was forceful and courageous and he would not bend to whatever their wills were. Humble Jesus would not submit to this man's desire. I mean, you could restate that sentence with the abused wife. The humble wife would not submit, the humble abused wife would not submit to her husband's desires to manipulate or hurt her. Humble Jesus had already set aside his rights for the will of the Father. And because he did that, it illuminated and empowered him to give the perfect humble response to this misguided man. When the religious Nicodemus came to him in John 3 and asking him about eternal life, Jesus gave him an answer that contradicted everything that the spiritual man knew about God's word. Jesus was so humble to the Father's will, uh, that he was not intimidated by the religious man's pedigree, nor was he influenced by groupthink, what everybody else was thinking and what everybody else wanted him to do. When his close friends in John 11, Mary and Martha, When they were rebuking him, they were being harsh, they were being unkind, they were rebuking him, they were saying so many unkind things to him because they believed that he was not moving fast enough in light of their brother's sickness. Jesus turned and gave them a response that had to shake them to the very core of their being. He said, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad he went on to say, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad, so that you might believe. Jesus broke rule number one when it comes to bringing comfort to a person grieving over the death of a loved one. He seemed to be happy about it. Now, he wasn't, but he did say, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. He seemed to be happy about it. That was stunning, Jesus willingly and humbly submitted himself to the Father's will. And because he was so submitted to the Father's will, it provided true insight to share, to share with others, even in the face of death, the death of Lazarus and the consternation of Mary and Martha. When the religious crowd was standing in front of him, this is John 8 now, and the adulterous woman was there and they had rocks in hand, Jesus knew what to say and do. He went against tradition. He went against expectation because it was his Father's will that was more important at that moment. The passage reads like this in John 8, 7 through 9. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Being humble cannot mean that you submit yourself to the desires of every person in your life. Now there are a lot of Christians that need to hear that sentence. They need to write it out. They need to memorize it. Again, we're not going to argue the fact that Jesus was humble, but in these passages that I just shared with you, Jesus never submitted to the desires of human beings when those desires contradicted the will of God. He was humble and he went against the desires of the rich young ruler. He was humble, and he went against what Nicodemus was thinking. He was humble, and he went against what Mary and Martha were wanting. He was humble, and he went against the crowd when they were standing there with the adulterous woman. Being humble... Cannot mean that you submit yourself to the desires of every person in your life. It means you must live in submission to only one person, and that person is Christ. Paul clarifies this as he moves through Philippians two, one through eleven. And I would encourage you to read the whole passage. I'm not going to share it with you, but you you have a Bible, you can read it. Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven. He said, let the mind of Christ be in you. The hurting spouse who wants to be a humble spouse now has a single, unique, isolated example that she can follow. She can set aside her rights for the rights of Christ. She does not want what she wants, but she wants what Christ wants, not what her husband wants. But what Christ wants, let Christ's mind be in you. Submit to the Father's will as Jesus did. Let me be redundant here. Counting others more significant than yourself or serving others more than yourself does not mean giving a person anything and everything they want or demand. It does not mean doing everything they say it does not mean you must keep lockstep to all of their requirements. That response is not humility, but fear induced or fear manipulated domination. Go back and read these illustrations of Christ. He counted others more significant. But he always submitted to the Father's will. On any occasion when you are interacting with another person, you must interpret their desires, their wishes, their demands, their requests, and needs through a what is the will of God for this person grid. That is how you interpret everything that everybody brings to you through this filter here. Here's the filter. What is the will of God for this person? That is how Jesus interpreted everybody who came to him. Now, with this view in mind, you will have clear and biblical marching orders, which gives the abused wife her directives and responses to her mean husband. That is, she must do the will of her father. Rather than being controlled by her mean husband, she should set aside her rights for the will of God which will motivate her to respond biblically to what is going on in her marriage, which means at least these two things. One, she should do all she can do to keep from being abused because God made her in His image. Two, she should seek to have her husband restored from the bondage of sin. Now, these two responses could mean several things. Let me give you some illustrations. These two responses could mean that she should humbly call the civil authorities to have him arrested. Maybe she should humbly file for a legal separation. Perhaps she should humbly get a restraining order. She most definitely should humbly let her spiritual authorities, her local church, know what is going on while appealing to them for help. She may even humbly have biblical grounds for divorce. You see, there there will be four wills competing for supremacy over her heart. There will be the will of God, the will of her husband, there will be her will, and there will be the will of others. In the bank of noise that she will be facing, she must learn to discern the only voice that matters, and that is God's voice. It would be wise for her to do, to do these three things. One, search God's word daily. Two, talk to God throughout the day. One, study in the Bible, and the other is prayer. And then third, find at least one competent and trusted friend to walk with her through her problems And I say one competent friend, Proverbs says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. I've also found that there can be confusion in a multitude of counselors. If you get a bunch of biblical counselors together, you may have more confusion than clarity. And so she needs to search God's Word daily. She needs to talk to God throughout the day. She needs to find at least one competent and trusted friend to walk with her through her problems. She will need to segregate and discern all the voices that are speaking into her life. The title of the podcast is, Should I Count My Mean Husband More Significant Than Me? You can read this if you wish. I have other uh, articles embedded as well, and then I have a call to action here at the end. Let me ask you just a few questions. The first one is, Does the humility of Christ make sense to you? even though Jesus would rebuke people or stand contrary to their desires. I hope that makes sense to you. Jesus was humble, but he rebuked people. He stood contrary to their desires, but he was humble. Number two, what areas in your life is it difficult to discern the will of God? Why is it difficult? And I know this happens a lot to wives. They hear this bank of voices, or they hear one dominating voice, which is their husbands. And these husbands are so loud and so manipulative, so condemning and so contrary. And and the wife is, that's all that she can hear. She can't hear the will of God. And she gets confused and double-minded. Are there areas in your life where it's difficult to discern the will of God? Question number three, what desires or influences compete with your desire to put on the mind of Christ? It's another way of asking the question that I just, just gave you. The bank of noise is coming in your life. What is competing with your desire to have the mind of Christ? Number four, is there a person who negatively sways you from doing God's will? Number five, are there any fears that hinder you from doing the right thing? And then finally, number six, if you are in a difficult situation and the will of the Father is not clear to you and there are competing voices in your life, perhaps we can serve you. Will you talk to us? Will you jump on our website? Let us serve you. We would love to do just that.